Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. This is episode 151, and today we'll be chatting with Nathan Bashaw, the co-founder and CEO of Hardbound. After discovering the world of startups during college and driven by the desire to build things and implement his own ideas, Nathan became a self-taught developer. He knew pretty early on that he wanted to leverage technology to create new forms of education and storytelling that was native to new devices like smartphones. After joining Olark as an intern and then working in San Francisco as a full-time developer, Nathan decided to pursue his own project, Scratchpad. It was later acquired by General Assembly, where Nathan then worked as a product manager. While in San Francisco, Nathan met Ryan Hoover and helped him create the first version of what would become Product Hunt. Nathan then decided to focus on pursuing his own vision for what would become Hardbound. He and the team have completed the Techstars Boulder program, raised some funding, and released a completely new version of the app. Nathan joins us to share his story, some of the biggest challenges he faced in becoming a product manager, why he's so passionate about new forms of education and storytelling, what it's been like building Hardbound, some of the biggest challenges they've had to overcome so far, what it's been like raising money, what it was like going through Techstars Boulder, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet at us at hack to start Drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com, or share your feedback right on iTunes with a review. Good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, Nathan, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, how's it going? Thank you for having me, Franco. It's going very well. We're really excited to have you on the show, man. Uh, big fan and have been following you uh, on Twitter for quite a while with all the stuff you did at Product Hunt and now Hardbound, which is one of my favorite uh, new apps. And it feels even newer now. I guess you guys just did an update a yeah. couple of weeks ago. It feels Thank like a completely you. new app, which which we'll get to. But before we dive into that, can you tell us in the audience a little bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from and what did you study? Definitely. So I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, which when I think about it, the accent comes out a little bit from my past. <laughs> but uh, I, I moved out of there when I was uh, going off to college. So I went to school at Michigan State and studied political theory. That's really cool. And what, what's involved in political theory? It's a lot of kind of like political philosophy type books. So we read, you know, Plato, Aristotle, uh, like Machiavelli, Nietzsche, all that kind of stuff. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds pretty cool. Uh, I've read I've read only very few of those people, but it sounds definitely like an interesting thing to go through. It's surprisingly applicable to like building companies, I would say. <laughs> That's really cool. So where did your passion for tech and entrepreneurship really come from in that case? Yeah. So when I went into school, the thing I cared about most was debate. And uh, I was on the debate team in high school. And basically, that's the reason why I went to Michigan State is to join their debate team. And they've got a really good debate team. And I went to debate camp there when I was in high school. And like I knew the coaches and stuff. So that was kind of the primary reason for going up to Michigan State. And my thinking was, I don't know what I'll be after this, like maybe some sort of lawyer or something, or like maybe go into like government or politics or something, work for like an NGO think tank policy kind of thing. Because in debate, you're just talking about like policies that, you know, the federal government should potentially do or not do. And uh, I just, the thing that really drew me to it is thinking about what's a way to organize the world that's better than the way it is now. Like, how could we, how could we make more good happen and like less disharmony or dysfunction? And I had this sort of realization that it was going to be a really long time before I would have any influence at all on very much of that stuff because, you know, and rightfully so, the system is set up to kind of block 
anyone from being able to come along and like do stuff because you know it kind of affects a lot of people and you don't want to screw that up because <laughs> there's only only one government really well there's state governments and city and local and all that kind of stuff but you know there's there's one federal government anyway so I got kind of curious to see if there are other fields where like more of my ideas could be put into practice sooner in my career. And there's this one guy who I was actually working for named Rick Snyder, who was running for governor of Michigan, who had a background in startups and venture capital. And um, that just got super interesting to me. And so I, I kept kind of diving further and further into that and eventually somehow stumbled upon like Paul Graham's essays and just realized startups were an amazing avenue to like take ideas you have about the world of a thing that people might want or that might make the world a better place somehow. And you can just sort of build them. And like, if it works, it just works. There's no like getting elected or <laughs> like, have, you know, having to pass something with a bunch of votes, like you can just kind of build stuff. It's of course not quite as simple as that, but it's pretty close. So, you know, that got really interested in, in startups through that and eventually taught myself how to code and design websites just because I wanted to be closer to like building the actual things rather than just being like the idea guy or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the origin of my interest in startups. That's amazing. And so how did you approach, I guess, learning how to code and how to build the first few websites that that was that through a few jobs in school or, or how did that happen? It's kind of a long and really painful process. And, and I wouldn't say that it was something that I picked up super easily or like naturally. Like I had been interested in computers for a long time and it had like, you know, stolen copies of Photoshop on my computer since like high school and stuff. And it just was interested in like web design, I guess. And, and, um, so I was kind of vaguely aware of it. And like early on in college, I'd done a little bit of HTML and CSS for the Model UN website is <laughs> actually what I made. Um, but yeah, so, the, you know, I was kind of like had some really light familiarity with it and interest in it. And then when I got interested in startups and like building websites or apps or whatever, like functioning products, as opposed to just like landing pages or whatever, it was really tough. And um, the thing that got me over the hump the most was this book called Head First PHP NYSQL, which is uh, part of the O'Reilly Head First series. And it's got these like goofy pictures of like people's faces on the cover and they're kind of purplish. But it's really an amazing series of book. And it was created by someone who's definitely a personal hero of mine uh, named Kathy Sierra. Um, and she just did an amazing job kind of architecting this series. And like, honestly, every single, because of the principles that she sort of set down in the beginning, every single one of those books is so good. And it was a huge inspiration for stuff that I've worked on in the rest of my career. But it was a good, it was like the thing that got me over that initial hump that I feel like there's this initial hump of like knowledge that's so hard to cross. And once you cross it, you're kind of on the other side. And each new thing you're adding is just like you're adding to your snowball. But getting that initial snowball going is like so hard. And so I would say that's the, that's the main thing that did it for me. That's really cool. Uh, I'm familiar with the, with the series, but uh, haven't spent enough time with it myself, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, it's super good. It's super good. I mean, I think, I don't know what the deal is with it now, because, I mean, maybe they're still coming out with new stuff. I just haven't paid a lot of attention to it. So if they're not, it'd really be a shame, because there should be, like, you know, headfirst, like, modern web development, because PHP and MySQL is not, especially the way they teach it there is not totally state-of-the-art but uh, <laughs> these days, but it's still really good. The way they teach is the main thing. It's just, like, a very good tutorial, as opposed to most programming books are not super beginner-friendly. Yeah, absolutely. So after, I guess, you know, teaching yourself how to code and doing some of that stuff, how did you, you know, start your career uh, right, right after school? When I was in school, I helped start this meetup called Hackers and Hustlers. 
just because there's a lot of really kind of experienced programmers and people into startups in Ann Arbor. And there was, that's like where University of Michigan was. And I got to know some of them through the political campaigns I had worked on. And uh, there wasn't as much at Michigan State. There was some, but I wanted to create a kind of meetup that was big enough and good enough for some people from Ann Arbor to come from, and also some people from Grand Rapids, which is like on the other side of the state. So, you know, worked with a couple of people in the Lansing kind of startup scene that had had really great connections. And I did a lot of the grunt work to put this thing on. And um, we ended up filling a room of like, I don't know, maybe like 100 people. And we got some pretty cool speakers to come, including one guy who was the co-founder of a startup named Olark. And that was the first instance of that meetup. And after it that night at the like, you know, after a party dinner kind of thing, he was just like, you know, if you want an internship after you graduate, that would be something we'd be interested in. And Olark had gone through YC maybe like the year before. And there was four co-founders and one kind of first employee, and they were just starting to take on like other people. I remember when I joined that summer, it was like a crop of maybe like four interns or whatever. Um, and a lot of them went back to school, but but I ended up staying on because I had graduated. That was like during my senior year of college. And um, I was just, it was really cool because like, it was, it was just kind of like landed in my lap. But the funny thing is like, when he first asked me, I like had this startup idea that I was working on in college uh, with a friend of mine. And when he first asked if I wanted to join OLARC, I said no, because I was just like, well, you know, I have this startup, like, I think it could be really successful or whatever. And of course, like looking back, it had no shot and it was a terrible idea and we were not the right team to build it. But <laughs> I was pretty interested in, in continuing that and kept working on it for like two-ish more weeks. And the idea of like Olark and also potentially moving out to the Bay Area, because that one founder was, was based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but the rest of them were out in Palo Alto, California. And so it kind of percolated in my head more and more and Eventually, I realized like it would be really dumb to turn this down because probably my startup is not going to succeed, and especially not in Michigan, where there's not a lot of people who have done this successfully before that I can learn from. There's some, but just there's a lot more, and especially working for a company that's you know that small and growing, I just thought it'd be like a really good opportunity, and I'm totally glad that I made that decision. I, I don't know where I would have ended up if I didn't, but during that startup, moved out to Palo Alto, lived in like the Olark house. They had like a house <laughs> in Palo Alto, and it, this was like. Do you remember MT TechCrunch Cribs? Yes. <laughs> this was like back when that was a really popular thing. And so I was super excited to live in like, you know, a startup house, like a hacker house kind of situation and uh, just worked a lot and learned a ton. And that's where I, I learned a lot about like what building a company is actually like. That was like my first real taste of that. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I got my first job out of college. Yeah, it's awesome. What a what an incredible story. So I guess you've touched on it just a little bit there. But what was it really like joining that small of a team at that time in Palo Alto? And what were some of the biggest lessons that came out of the experience in terms of impacting you as like a future founder? One of the biggest things is just how valuable it is to be in an environment where by accident, and just naturally, you meet really talented people that are working on really cool stuff. I feel like I wasn't even that necessarily well connected or you know in the scene or whatever but I look back on that period of time when I was like had first moved out to California like the first couple of years and all the people I met there and it's like it just feels like a Forrest Gump type situation where like when I was at Olark we were trying to sell Airbnb on you know using Olark on their website and uh, one of the engineers at Airbnb who was on the other end of, of that sort of sales interaction we had a meeting with like six people in it or whatever one of those engineers was like really cool and we hit it off and uh, met up a couple times afterward and he was telling me about his other stuff he was doing outside of Airbnb, which was building this like Bitcoin wallet 
website, that turned out to be Coinbase. And he's the founder of Coinbase, that guy who I met. Or like I met uh, these guys who are really cool and were, were working on this thing and had gotten into Y Combinator and they're working on, uh, forgot what it was at the time, but it was like something related to schools. And then they ended up pivoting and it became Segment, which have you heard of Segment.com? I have, yeah. They're awesome. Yeah, they're like big, really, really doing very well in the like data kind of B2B space. But uh, And then another one, a friend of mine, actually this guy I knew from college, but he started uh, Remind 101, which I guess rebranded to Remind.com. And um, it's like, I don't know, something like 40% of all teachers in America use it to like text message their students and their teachers. And like, I just never would have been able to be around those. Oh, another one was some guys that lived near us had started a company that ended up pivoting into Firebase. That was another one of those. But it's like, there's nothing like particularly remarkable about me. I feel like lots of people who lived in that area, like around that time period, probably had very similar stories of like, they could list off all the people that they met that went on to start companies that would become really successful. But, you know, I met all those people just randomly and there's really no replacement for being there. There are some people who can make it work just like via tweeting at people and stuff, but that's really hard to do. It's much easier if you just like naturally randomly are meeting these folks as as a course of interacting through like work or potentially like parties or whatever else. And so I I think that was a huge part of that. It's just to like meet those people before they started and to see like, they're just like me. They just were smart, worked really hard, and were in the right place at the right time. And there's definitely a little bit of luck and and a lot of skill and hard work, but not like a superhuman amount, just like a normal amount, you know? And so I think it gave me a lot of confidence that like eventually one day it would work out for me if I just kind of like kept my head in the right place and kept trying to do the right things. Absolutely. That's super cool. And so after that experience, one of your first startups at that point in life was was Scratchpad.io, which was later acquired by General Assembly. So can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what Scratchpad was and what it was like getting that acquired by General Assembly? Yeah, totally. So I left Olark after like a year and a half, not because I didn't like the team or what I was doing. I really love everyone there is great. And I, and I still keep in touch with tons of them. And actually, one of the founders is an investor in Hardbound. But I just was not super passionate about their product. Like, I realized through working there that, like, it's a prerequisite for me to be engaged in what I'm doing, that I'm working on something that I consider to be really cool or important. And everyone has a subjective definition of, like, what is exciting for them. But I've known pretty much since college that what's exciting for me is something in the space of, like, learning or communicating information in interactive new ways that are really designed from the start for computers or phones or whatever, rather than like digital recreations of paper or TVs or whatever, which is what like, if you think of the main ways of consuming media, it's scrolling through text, which is a digital recreation of just paper, basically, and you could print 99% of web articles, and it would be just fine. Or video, which is a digital recreation of TV, and you could put stuff on a TV, and it's just fine. I'm really interested in something that's like, unique to a phone, that's better, a better user experience than just creating digital recreations of what we've had before new formats. So anyway, so I've been interested in that for a while. And I was thinking a lot about that stuff, like even in college and at Olark. So when I left Olark, the first thing I wanted to do was like start some kind of company with like my friend from college, actually the same guy who I was starting a company with before I joined Olark, Olark that made me almost say no to joining Olark. And so we worked together on this thing that was like sort of communities of people who are really passionate about certain topics could like get together and talk about that thing. And we had some ideas of how we could be better than like Reddit or Facebook groups, but none of it ended up actually mattering. And so we sort of decided to not work on that anymore. And and my co-founder decided to, he actually wasn't super interested in starting a company. And so that was obviously a real bummer for me and not like the happiest moment in life because I had just left my job and 
was paying rent in San Francisco, uh, watching my savings dwindle and wondering what was next for me and thinking, oh, I guess I'll have to get a job or something. And I thought, well, I've got a little bit of runway left. Like I should work on something that's really interesting while I have the time and it's going to take a while to find a job anyway. So, and like, what am I going to do? Apply for jobs like all day? Like I could probably work on something cool for like four hours in the day and then like spend an hour or two, you know, applying for jobs or whatever else. And so that's where Scratchpad was born out of. And the basic idea of it was actually, it was kind of like a toy that was meant to be a part of this like larger thing, which was like an interactive book teaching people how to code. And one of the things that I thought would be cool is if as a part of this book, there'd be a way to write HTML and CSS and then see instantly the results of it. And there are products that let you sort of do that, but none of them to me were like elegant or fast enough. And I wanted something that was like literally the second that your finger hits that key, like the thing changes and, and nobody was doing that at the time. And also I wanted it to be like more of a shareable artifact that was like, you could edit in real time with other people kind of like in Google docs. And so, and this was actually when Firebase first launched. So I was using that to make it, to make it work on the back end. Basically coded up a quick first version of it, iterated on it a couple of times, getting feedback from friends and then put it on Hacker News and uh, took off and it was at the top for most of that day that I launched it. There was a little bit of like, anytime you launch something on Product Hunt or Hacker News or whatever, you've like got to ping people that are close to you and like get them to vote to get it into like the front page so that it has a chance to take off from there. And then from there, it's really like up to kind of how good the thing is. And I've launched tons of things where I'll bug people and get like 10 upvotes pretty quickly. And then after that, it just kind of sinks back down. But this one, it just didn't happen that way. People actually really liked it. And so after that, one of the co-founders of General Assembly got in touch with me. And it was funny because I remember thinking like, I have no clue what this is about. Like maybe I'll get a job there or like maybe they could acquire it or something. Like I wasn't sure. And uh, we were just talking and he was being very cryptic. He was just like, I really like what you've built. And, you know, maybe there's some way we could partner together. And I was just like, I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Um, but yeah, sure. I'm open to partnering together, but it turned out that they wanted to like hire me and acquire what I had built so far. And, uh, I, I also showed them a lot more of the stuff I was working on with like the interactive coding tutorial and I thought it was cool and they thought it would be something that's useful, you know, for their students and, and as a marketing tool to get more students. So they ended up, yeah, acquiring it. And I joined general assembly and just kept working pretty much solo at first out of San Francisco, even though they're based in New York and kept developing this tool to teach people how to code. It's really cool. It's pretty incredible to see that, you know, something that, that you just decided to work on for a few hours a day ended up there with General Assembly. Yeah, no, I mean, like it was really um, I think a lot of it was like the right time because this was definitely in the peak of like interest in people learning how to code, like probably even a little bit before it. So a lot of it, a lot of it was just like timing kind of. But I mean, I would I would highly recommend if you want a job and you can code or design, just like make something cool that's thematically related to the kind of company you would want to work for and get it on their radars. That's like such a great hack. It's so much better than sending in a resume or something or like even getting introduced from someone that you know there. So as you mentioned, you ended up working in San Francisco with General Assembly, you know, as a product manager after the acquisition. So can you share a little bit more about what it was like to be a product manager there and, you know, some of the projects you had a chance to work on after Scratchpad? I think one of the things that's interesting and maybe a little bit unique, but not terribly unique about my background is like, I think a lot of people get into product management either as an engineer 
where they're used to working on engineering teams and they have a strong sense for product. And so they eventually like decide they're okay with not really coding that much anymore and like working with engineers and designers to figure out what the features should be or how it should be architected or whatever. And then another path into product management is just to like, you know, straight out of school, like maybe get a job somewhere as an assistant product manager or associate product manager or whatever, and then just kind of work your way up into more and more responsibility and bigger teams. Maybe some people also go from designer to product manager, but like, I feel like the entrepreneur product manager, like, or actually a better way to put it would be like the kind of solo hacker type (laughs) where you can design and code and you're really interested in why anyone would want to use it and how to like make it the best, most useful possible thing. And like you think about how to position it and all that kind of stuff where you're really very full stack and you're kind of talk about T-shaped or whatever, like you're kind of comb shaped (laughs) where you've got like, instead of one deep specialty, you've got like several that are all kind of clustered near each other. And they're all maybe not as deep as they would be if you were totally specialized, but they're deep enough to like be pretty dangerous, each of those skills. I think that's a great background to become a product manager in because you just have this, when you build something by yourself, You have all this like empathy for every single step of the process. And I feel like it's so much easier to transition into a role. It's harder in some ways, but it's easier than others. But I think it is mostly better to transition into the role where you're working with designers and marketers and engineers and doing maybe a little bit of like stakeholder management with like executives at a company. I just feel like you're in a much better position to like understand how the work happens if you've like really at some point tried to be pretty deep in each area of it. And uh, so for me, the it was in some parts of it, I feel like it was easy for me to be a really good product manager just because it's in some ways I had done all those jobs before. But then in other ways, it was super challenging because I had no good skill or feel for like where to assert my taste or like be the editor and kind of hold the line of like what we can ship and what's not good enough or whatever versus someone who maybe has more of a traditional management background. Because like when some of the hardest things of like my early kind of product management experience at General Assembly, when it wasn't just me and there was a team of people that I was working with is like, for instance, working with a designer and seeing some stuff that I just knew like was not quite good enough. And it was definitely not really an improvement on what we had. And maybe having a little conversation about it, but then like not really being able to change the design that much, just like by persuasion, couldn't get on the same page with the designer. And then just being like, okay, like, I guess you're supposed to like trust your people. And I'm not the designer, so I don't need to know any, like own kind of all parts of this. Then let that design ship and uh, got an email from the CEO 10 minutes later saying like, whoa, like the site looks worse now. What happened? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, like, it, it does look worse. Like I, I'm aware of that. And, and like learning how to deal with those kinds of things was really tough for me because I didn't have a good sense of how to kind of be firm when you need to be and like kind of trust in your own taste. And, and, and part of that's just, I guess, experience doing it. And, and now I've had more years of doing that. And so I feel more comfortable with it. But it's pretty interesting. Like I'm, I'm very interested in the role of product manager and like how people get into it and what it takes to be a good one. It's something that I think about a lot because it's, it's not easy at all. Yeah, definitely not. And it's really interesting to hear, you know, bring that point up and, and sort of explain how experience and time has helped you, you know, learn how to handle those situations and how to develop those tastes and be that editor. It's actually uh, really interesting to, to hear about that sort of perspective. I think it's one of the roles that like a lot of people ask, like, how do I become a product manager? And it's sometimes like if you say, like, how do I become an engineer? Like, there's a pretty clear answer, like, 
definitely learn how to code, build some stuff on your own, like have, have a good portfolio of things. There's a certain kind of career path of like junior developers that you can get hired for and like you gradually learn more and more and you can move up and take on more responsibility and potentially, you know, manage engineers or just like be responsible for bigger and more complex, you know, engineering challenges. With product management, there's not a clear like set of things you can do and it's a role that's hard to get hired into and I feel extremely lucky, honestly, like super lucky that I got hired into that. I think if it weren't for the fact that there was this side project I made that was at the right place at the right time and the right company saw it that was willing to like do something kind of unconventional and then they did it and it actually worked out pretty well and then eventually they did hire more people to like work with me that I was sort of actually managing as opposed to just building the thing by myself. I don't know how I would have become a product manager and that just doesn't seem like super replicable. It's a little bit replicable. You could in a targeted way like create side projects, but um, I don't feel like I have great advice when people ask me how to become a product manager. And it's something that I wish I had a better answer for, but I think there's just a very limited amount of product management roles compared to like designer engineering. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely agree. So speaking of of side projects, you also had a pretty instrumental role in helping to build and shape Product Hunt. And I know you've written about it on Medium and and we'll make sure we link to that so people can read that. But can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what that experience was like and some of the biggest lessons to come out of being a part of Product Hunt in the early days? So Ryan was another one of those guys that I just met and, you know, we're basically just as a byproduct of living in San Francisco. And uh, I think we actually met on a site called Quid. That was like link sharing of like what people are reading in the tech industry or whatever. And he just like always was posting on there and had good comments and stuff. And so we just got coffee. And we had built a couple other side projects before, or at least one, and kind of talking about different collaborations we might do. And uh, he launched this product hunt thing just as an email list. And I thought like, wow, this is really cool. And a couple months later, or maybe it was just one month, it wasn't that long. He emailed me and just asked about like using some open source framework to get it off the ground with. And I still remember reading that email and like thinking about what product hunt could become. And I just thought it was like really clear to me that it would work from the perspective of like a side project. And I wasn't sure what it could be beyond that, but I just thought it was really cool. And and I, and I saw a way to like build a version of it that would be so much better than the open source thing that like, I was just like really pumped to work on it. And so without really knowing what I was getting myself into, just replied and was like, hey, like you could use that thing, but I'd also be willing to just build something custom because I think this is a sweet idea. I think a lot of people would really love to use it. And um, so if you want to like actually work on it with someone, I would be very happy to do that. So I'm really, really thankful that he said yes. And um, yeah, we worked on it and started out by like, he sent me some designs that he had in mind, kind of loose mock-ups, some notes of like how he was thinking, like what the main most important priorities of the product would be. And then, you know, we had a lot of phone calls and uh, back and forth on that. And I sent him some more designs and he sent back a bunch of feedback. And it was just like a loop that was pretty tight. And this was all over the course of a couple nights and like plane rides and then a weekend where we're like the design phase, so to speak, was happening. Pretty quickly, we got to something that we both felt really good about design-wise. And so I started coding it and already set up some of the basic stuff that I knew was going to be there. But I started really like digging into it around Thanksgiving of 2013. And um We ended up launching it like the week after Thanksgiving. It was like, it did not take very long to code the initial version of it. It was missing a lot of features, but it was still, you know, it was like definitely usable. And so, yeah, worked on it for like a couple months, just kind of nights and weekends and stuff. And when Ryan decided to go full time with it, because it was starting to work, I thought about it and realized I would not really be a good co-founder of this. 
because the main reason why I would want to do it, like in the pros column, would just be for the sake of starting a company. And I knew that I was really more passionate about something similar to like what Hardbound would one day become. And I didn't know exactly what it was, but I thought it was something with like books and, you know, interactive storytelling or visual storytelling. And so I said no. And I really think that was a great decision for me and for Product Hunt because I think eventually I would have probably burnt out if I would have like done that full time, just for the same reason that I eventually left Olark, you know, love the people, great company, but not something that I'm personally motivated enough to continue doing even in like the really hard times of which there are many when you start a company. So yeah, so that was kind of like the arc of me and Product Hunt. And then after that, just basically continued being big booster and fan and tried to help however I could. But he's been running with it since like basically the beginning. I really had my role with the initial creation. And then after that, it was all him and the rest of the team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a great story. Yeah. And it's, it's very powerful to recognize, you know, that even though it's a cool idea that, that you know, you're passionate about something else and, and to pursue that. And so speaking of that, today, you're the co-founder and CEO of Hardbound, this amazing iOS app that's really, as you've mentioned a few times, sort of reimagining how people read and consume content on their mobile devices. So can you tell us a, a bit more about Hardbound, I guess, beyond that, and really what motivated you to launch a product like that? And what was it about, you know, the space really in, in terms of consuming content and presenting content on a phone, what, what was it about that space that had you so interested in creating that type of product? I still remember when I was in college, first of all, just loving books and going anytime I had a spare moment to like the Barnes and Noble near campus or like spending tons of time in the library, always just like gravitating towards particularly books that I feel like I could get some wisdom from or like learn something about the world. I like fiction and I probably read like a quarter of fiction, but like my main interest is definitely nonfiction. And so I was, I've always been interested in books as like things that, if you think about it, it's really fascinating, like the percentage of things that you know for a fact because you directly experienced it versus the percentage of whether they're principles or ideas or morals and values, like whatever it is that you've gleaned somehow from like movies, books, etc. And I think the kind of wisdom or principles or values that you absorb from books are really different than the kinds that you absorb from reading the news or whatever. Um, there's not a lot of life lessons or whatever in the news usually. It's just kind of like some controversy that is able to attract a lot of attention and therefore survives in an information marketplace. And it's probably important for some people to know about, but I think ultimately it has limited value unless you tell it in a certain way. Now, if you t if you tell a real story around the news event, then it can be totally different. Anyway, I've just always like loved that uh, and wanted to somehow make my career be a part of that or like be in service of that. And the way that I've always hoped to be able to contribute was to do something with technology, with computers or phones or whatever, like something that's new. Because if you think about it, there's this thing that we will always and forever want, which is like knowledge and wisdom and learning. And there's this way we're currently getting it, which is like dead trees or TV or movies, I guess, or digital recreations of dead trees. I just always thought there was going to be like, especially in college, when I started thinking about it more, something that is different that people discover because this new technology is so different from paper. Like, why would we tell stories the same way? It, it seems kind of dumb to me. Like more recently, I started looking a lot more deeply into the history of other things that might be analogous. And I think the best example is movies because when the video camera was first invented, they were just using it to film things you might see in real life as just like little tests or whatever. But the first real forms of like entertainment in motion pictures were 100% based on vaudeville shows, which are like basically a traveling little theater production that had a whole bunch of little, it was like the Saturday Night Live of like its day, but you would see it like in person at a theater or whatever, or like an amphitheater or something, like in your town. It was almost like a circus or something like that, but not quite. And so these vaudeville shows, like they basically already had the acts 
of like what they would do. So it would be like somebody who could breathe fire or whatever, or swallow a sword or like do a dance or something. And they would just film that. And those were movies. It was vaudeville shows, but like on movies as opposed to uh, in person. And that was like the whole business of it. And it wasn't until literally decades later that people started to tinker with something that looked similar to what we have today as a movie where there's cinematography. And it's a completely new kind of storytelling that's like native to what you can do with film. And really, I think the same thing is going to happen with phones, except on a much bigger scale, because phones are much more or like, you know, smartphones, like touchscreen phones are a way more malleable creative medium to play with. And so, I mean, of course, there's tons of examples of things that already do this. So like games, huge explosion of mobile games, something maybe a little closer would be like, have you seen these like chat story apps where you tap and you see another text message? And it's like usually in the genre of like YA thrillers. So it's like, you're at school and you like text your friend like, OMG, I found a dead hand in my locker or something like hooked is probably the big one. And then there's a bunch of other ones that came out after that. Are you familiar with those? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they're like completely blowing up right now. And I think it's really interesting because this is not the kind of thing that would really work on paper. It's invented as a native thing that makes sense on a phone. So I think there's going to be lots of stuff like this. And I really think that the format that we've been working on is inevitable. And, you know, maybe one company is not going to own it necessarily, but I could totally imagine I mean, and I do totally imagine an industry built around it the same way that the move, there's the invention of the video camera, there's the discovery of cinematography and feature films, that that's something that people would really like. There is this proliferation of movie theaters, there's proliferation of movie studios, and all of a sudden, there's this huge industry that we still have today and is still super powerful and impacts people all over the world. And I think the exact same thing is going to happen with something like what I'm calling tap stories. Basically, like you tap and you see something new on your phone and you just keep tapping to advance the story or you can like swipe to go back or whatever. I just think it creates a stronger connection between a screen and a brain. And in all the experiments we've done literally over years, like in all the data we've looked at and, and it, it just convinces me more and like over a quarter of a million people have read stories in our format um, on hardbound. And, and I just, I'm, I'm totally convinced that th this is going to be a future, like tap stories have a really great chance to be an industry that's just as big, if not bigger than like the movie industry potentially, um, or the book publishing industry, which is based on a similar technology called the printing press. That's just a lot older, basically, but similar thing where novels didn't exist before printing presses. The art form of a novel came about because of the technology. So anyway, that's just super exciting to me. Like the thought that there's this thing now that anyone has the chance to create stuff for that you could contribute to something that could be a part of history and not just any part of history. Like it'd be one thing to me to be like the founder of something like Uber, where you're helping people get around and it's like more convenient, but like ultimately getting from place A to place B is not super inspiring to me. Whereas like, you know, books, art, that's like one of my favorite things in the world. And so, and I feel like I've gotten so much out of it personally. So the feeling of being able to like help people experience better stories on their phone by creating a format that's better than the formats that exist and hopefully be a part of the early days of this thing that I think could eventually be a really big, not just a big industry, but a, a big force and culture, a big cultural pattern, basically, the same way movies have been such a big cultural pattern or books. That's extremely exciting to me. And so it's really, and because I feel that this is so inevitable, like something like this will happen and already really in some ways is starting to, like, especially if you look at the hook, like the chat story app, like it'll be interesting to see if it's, you know, how that particular genre, if, whether it sticks or whether it fades away soon. And it's just kind of a fad, but regardless, I mean, I think it's already happening and, and just the more evidence I see, the more compelled I am to it. And so it really, it's very easy to not quit, even if things are looking pretty, pretty tough for us or like going through a tough moment, because I just think to myself, like for the amount of work that I've put into this and thought that I've put into this and, and I've been thinking about it since college, like it would be extremely disappointing if I gave up and like, you know, somebody else's company was the one that ended up 
<laughs> like becoming a big player in it. And I, and I totally missed out on the opportunity. So that's a big motivating factor for me. But that, that was kind of maybe a little bit more than what you asked for. But that's, that's a lot of the like really biggest picture thinking for me around hardbound. Absolutely. That's really cool. And and you did pack a lot into that answer. But there's two things that I found that were really interesting that you mentioned that maybe I just want to briefly touch on. The first is that, you know, you guys looked at a ton of data um, and obviously put in place an early community of users to provide, you know, product feedback and, and get those data points. So how do you approach creating an early community of, of readers? And in Hardbound's case, how did it help shape the development of the product, I guess? The main thing that we're trying to do is build this thing that you can come to and know that there's going to be stuff there that you love, right? So we need to earn your trust. So when you first sign up and you read a story or two, if it's not really, really good, it's just going to get deleted or you're never going to come back. And so the whole thing we focused on is just doing the best job we can creating stuff that's really good. We haven't really done a lot of sophisticated stuff around like community building or anything like that. It's just we put a lot of energy into making the best content we possibly can and really treating it for what I think it is, which is art. And it's also a business, but it would be, I don't know, I don't view I don't view it as just a business. So we put a lot of love into into the content. And I think that's what people respond to is people I mean, you know, if you think about the things that are the most popular, it's the things that are probably the best, in my opinion, a lot of times. Like if you look at something like let's say with podcasts, S Town, did you listen to it? It's like a work of art. Like and it's really popular. And like we aspire to that. I don't think we're that good yet, but I, I think we can be if we just like create a really amazing environment where super creative, talented people want to work on these kinds of stories in this format and we can make it happen, then I think we'll be able to build a big audience and big community. And so to the extent that we've built a community or an audience, it's just been proportional to the amount of effort we've put in at just being better at creating good stuff. Absolutely. Super cool. And so that that's sort of the second note that I want to touch on is creating content and developing what, what's become this this tap story and, and sort of the hardbound format. What was that process like for you in terms of figuring out, especially around the content creation piece, like how do you make stuff more engaging on a phone? What was that thought process like or, or development process like for you guys? Yeah, I think we it's been a process of like search. So we tried a whole bunch of different stuff that was wildly divergent in the early days. And we had a lot of kind of early hunches based on my experience working on Dash at General Assembly. I mean, the big thing about Dash is people really like the format that the content was in like the lessons of learning how to code were presented in. The fact that it's self-paced is a big deal. And the fact that there's no sound is a big deal. And the fact that it's visual and only shows you one thing at a time are big deals. And so those were kind of some cornerstone elements that I thought there's a really good chance that we're going to preserve those in hardbound and build build around that too for this format. But I wasn't sure exactly what it looked like. And originally, honestly, I thought that it would be, and, I, and basically the the answer is we just did a whole bunch of experiments and showed them to people and measured their response, both in terms of how long they spent reading it and whether they made it all the way through. And also just in like the tone of their voice when we asked them about it. Like you can tell a lot, honestly, by just building something, handing it to someone, watching them use it, and then seeing like if they get tripped up or confused by something. And if they don't, just watching their face and like, I can predictably like, if there's someone who hasn't seen Hardbound and I hand them their phone, my phone and they start using it, there's like an 80% chance that within 30 seconds, they'll just get a really big smile on their face. And that's because that's exactly what we designed for. We're like, you know, the first versions were not like that at all. They were confusing and you know didn't have a lot of value there's a lot of like kind of interactive stuff we were doing in the early days where people could like play with 
like a slider or zoom around in something or whatever. And like, it just ends up being confusing. Like it, it takes you away from the story. The, when that works, it works because there's one really simple mechanic that's very easy to learn. But on the creation side, it just adds too much. And on the consumption side, it's like, you don't really even need that. Like just tapping and having seen an animation and then seeing the next thing is, is pretty different. It's like, enough basically is what we've learned and and when we started we didn't realize how big a deal animations would be and we didn't really realize how to use animations we thought of it just as like video and maybe having looping videos or whatever but um the animated transitions like really help so and we just learned that through through basically testing and showing it to people there's a lot of failed hardbound prototypes from the first like really year honestly it wasn't until about a like nine months in that we felt settled on roughly a format. And even within that, we're still learning tons about how to do the best possible job telling stories in that format. Yeah, absolutely. And so shifting, I guess, a little bit from content creation to more the business side, Hardbound has raised some funding from VCs like Full Tilt Capital. Anthony was actually just on a few weeks ago. Um, and you guys recently completed Techstars. So what kind of advice do you have for other founders looking to raise funding or get into accelerator programs? That one's tough. I mean, I think there's tons of businesses that ours included, frankly, that kind of warp themselves um, for VCs. And I think we've done a good job sort of unwarping ourselves in some ways. But there are some time periods where I took VCs feedback like way too literally. And I think it's really important to have a vision for yourself of what you want to build that motivates you. That's almost in some ways, you, there should be some things that are like non-negotiable. I guess I'll, I'll make it more concrete. So with Hardbound, the advice that every VC loves to give, and I'm doing a better job of just like preempting why th that's actually bad advice. But the standard thing was like, okay, you've created this new format. It looks like it's really hard to create content in this format and you should create user-generated content. So what you need to do is make it super easy for anyone to create this content and build like a system where people can follow each other. And there's like a popular section of like the most interesting new stuff that people are making in Hardbound and like build a tool for anyone to be able to make Hardbound stories in like 30 seconds from your app and publish them. And um, we never really seriously thought about it, but we kind of did some weird like Frankenstein idea of like incorporating some elements of that without really going all the way. And it was just terrible strategy and idea for us. And it was basically a result of like not understanding, like kind of lack of courage of our convictions, I would say, and like being afraid that we would die because we couldn't raise money, which is frankly like a totally reasonable thing to be afraid of. What we should have done is just run in the opposite direction so hard that we found a place, and this is what we've done now, that we found a place where like it also makes sense just in a completely different way. But basically like the big danger is don't sort of compromise certain parts of your idea because you think it's more like, you know, quote unquote fundable. Try and have like a really coherent thing in your head that's independent of what a venture capitalist might think. And then it's your job to figure out how to communicate it to them. And usually it means like being almost the opposite of what they would expect if you're not going to go along with what they would expect. That's like maybe the best advice I have is just like to thine own self be true, basically. Because like, I just think a lot of companies could be really solid, but then they basically kill themselves because they do dumb things because they, they're trying to be something that actually won't work. If it would work, it would be really big, but it just won't work. And no one really believes it works. It's going to work. But like they try anyway, because a venture capitalist kind of told them they thought that would be a better idea or whatever. <laughs> I think it happens a lot. And I, I think it's a really huge cause of death of a lot of companies. And it's like the basically, I think it's the biggest negative part of the venture capital ecosystem existing. And on the other hand, the, the flip side is without venture capital, it'd be much harder to get things off the ground and you would see far less innovation. So there's huge pros. 
But I would say it's really important for entrepreneurs to manage that con and not let yourself become one of the fatalities of it. Absolutely. That's incredible advice, incredible insight. <laughs> and obviously, uh, super excited that it worked out for you guys in, in a positive way. It's too early to say, but <laughs> we avoided the, you know, a year ago when we were kind of pitching ourselves as sort of like a platform, but not really. Now we're like, definitely not. <laughs> so it's better to be definitely not than sort of, but not really. You know what I mean? So on, I guess on that note, like, what was it like going through Techstars and being part of that program? Uh, really, what was the, I guess, what was the process like for you going in with a fairly well-developed idea and product? Oh, man, Techstars is like amazing. I just can't recommend it enough. Like, especially Techstars Boulder. And one of the things I learned is each kind of program within Techstars can be pretty different. Like the people who run each program in a different city have a lot of leeway. And so, you know, I can't, I can vouch for the Techstars community overall to a certain extent, but the people who I can really vouch for are Natty and Julie who run Techstars Boulder. And I can also vouch for this guy named Zach Nees, who's like the global VP of education at Techstars. And uh, he worked pretty closely with us in the Boulder batch because he's right there in Boulder. And oh my gosh, it was just phenomenal. I, I didn't know what to expect. To be honest, a lot of it was just like the money, basically. And another big part of it was like, I thought it would probably be good to like be out in Boulder and like just be really heads down for a couple months working on the company in this like really critical moment for us. Basically, it turned out to be just like one of the most viable things that I have ever done in my career. And I think it'll have implications for me that are like far beyond hardbound. But you know, obviously, the side effect of that is I think hardbound has become way more valuable because of that, because I just feel so much more solid on not just like business tactics, or like how to operate a startup or how to raise a round or anything like that, which are obviously super helpful learnings, but but also just like how to kind of be in touch with how you're feeling about things and how others around you are feeling. Cause that dynamic and like your fears that you may not be willing to admit to yourself, and those kinds of dynamics really shape way more than I think most people would like to admit of success or failure. And your ability or inability to manage that is just so critical. And it Techstars Boulder is very good at uh, being helping you become more attuned to that. So so I, I can't speak highly enough of Techstars Boulder. And I think another interesting thing is a lot of accelerators I don't think are like that. And I also think it's kind of a new thing for Techstars Boulder since Natty and Julie have taken over a couple of years ago. And I'm sure the other approaches are good, but like it just this was like something else and something way better than what I was expecting. Um, like, for instance, I've had friends who have gone through Y Combinator and, you know, Olark that I was working at first job in my career uh, went through Y Combinator. And the impression I get is like, there are some people that you get to know pretty well and tons of people you don't know. And you get some pretty good advice in your company, but mostly it's like you, you know, writing code in your apartment, basically, and like getting users. And they're very, very focused on like growth metrics, which is good, obviously. Like, and you know, we tried to grow throughout Techstars. They do a decent job focusing on that too. But there's far less like, you know, going through YC is probably the equivalent of going through a really prestigious big state school where you're in a classroom that's like a lecture hall full of like hundreds of people and you all have a really amazing credential on your back, but you've kind of been farmed through a system. Whereas Techstars feels more like one of those really small liberal arts universities that's got a quirky name that some people have heard of and some hasn't, but like the people who know what the real deal is with it. And specifically, I'm talking about Techstars Boulder. People who know what the real deal is with it are super impressed by it. And then a lot of people don't really know what it is yet, just because I think what they're doing in Techstars Boulder is like, it's really only come about the past couple of years. I, th I think it's more like that, where there's a lot more like closer relationships and like deeper learnings than I think you would probably get through through any other accelerator. That's cool. It sounds like such a, an incredible experience. <laughs> it's kind of like X-Men, like X-Mansion, where everyone that they let in 
was honestly, and I and I I, I had no clue what to expect. Uh, I was a little skeptical, but like everyone that they let in has something about their company that's like insanely awesome and off the charts great, but are completely flawed in other ways. And like, I think they do an amazing job of selecting for the magnitude of your strength rather than the lack of your weaknesses, which is something that a lot of venture capitalists that are really good also do. And, and the ones that are kind of checkbox VCs of can you check all the boxes and then we'll fund you don't have as good of returns. And so I think it'll be, I'm really excited to see what everyone else in our class goes off to do. There was 12 for-profit companies and one non-profit company. And honestly, every single one of them I would invest in for sure. And and I know I'm coming, I'm coming off sending like I totally like drank the Kool-Aid and and like brainwashed by <laughs> tech stars. But like, I just feel like the gap between the public perception of how valuable, especially the Techstars Boulder program is, and what really goes on there is so large that I have, feel a very strong need to like continue to publicize as much as I can, like how great that is. So I guess after having gone through that experience and getting to work on Hardbound and, and learn a ton of new things, what's what's next for you guys? Actually, this is a part of the Hardbound story that I haven't haven't really told yet, but to kind of set the stage for what we're working on now, you know, when we first launched the company, it was all about the format, discovering what the format was. And then we got to the point where we felt great about the format because I knew there was like an 80% chance I could like show someone the app and they would open it and just like within 30 seconds, like they'd smile really big and say like, "Wow, this is really cool. But after that, we didn't really know. We struggled with like what's next because at that point, it was still just an art project, not a business. And so the past year of Hardbound has really been figuring out like what the business is. And, you know, we went through some tough times. There was like an acquisition offer that we ended up turning down from a company that people will have heard of and is similar-ish to Hardbound in some ways. And um, so we were kind of cocky coming off of that about a year ago and went out to raise a seed round and we're just not ready. And we ultimately did not raise the round. And there was a period of like a week where I thought, okay, like we're probably going to run out of money. And I'm going to have to figure out like what to do next. But we launched the app anyway, because we had several, you know, four or five-ish months of runway um, in the bank. And it just did super well. And basically, it was just me creating a story every week to keep people as engaged as I could with like new content. Because I knew that no one else was really going to like put as much effort into it. And I couldn't afford to hire anyone else to create any stories. And uh, so just off the back of me creating a story every week, basically, we got a pretty decent amount of traction. Like Apple featured us, you know, it was number one on Product Hunt when we launched. People did really like it, but it was still, there are parts of it that were very confusing and just kind of, it felt incomplete. It was like random kind of interesting stories that I made that some people were really big fan of, but most people were pretty ambivalent about because it's just, it's extremely hard to like break through as a new artist, essentially. And so we realized this and like going into text we knew we were going to have to change something. This is part of the X-Men, like some really deep strength and also some really big flaws. So that was our big flaw. Um, and the goal of Techstars was like fix that basically. So that's where we ended up deciding to change our focus to instead of just me creating stories, like go ahead and like take the risk on, you know, we had more funding from Techstars, like hire a couple other people. And so this designer named Eric Riley joined our team, this writer named Molly Bradley joined our team and also Will, who's been our sort of advisor from a long time and kind of editor of Hardbound really stepped up a ton. So those three became like the story team, essentially. And so it was a much more scalable story creation process. And we narrowed our focus to best-selling nonfiction books and writing stories about those. Because there's just tons of demand out there for the wisdom that's in those books and it's really hard to get to it. And we view ourselves as a really good first step to decide if you want to read the book or not. But even if you don't, like you've gotten something 
valuable out of it. It's not just a teaser or a trailer or anything. It's closer to like a TED talk or an interview with the author. And so anyway, so yeah, we focused on that and launched that sort of update to the app. It's been about a month, a little bit over a month. And um, we've just seen an awesome response so far. And so now we're just focused on growing it because we really feel like for the first time we have like full product market fit. Like we need to deepen it because we need a better content library, but it's pretty straightforward. Like it just takes time and money to do. Whereas before we weren't really sure what we had to do and spending more time and money doing our current model, like didn't seem like it would necessarily produce that great of results. Whereas now we're much more confident about that. So now we're just kind of trying to step on the gas and also focus more on doing new stuff around growth and marketing, which is really exciting because we'd never really done that before. But now we have something that is, you know, sticky enough so that we feel really confident spending resources and, and time and money trying to get it in front of more people. So yeah, that's kind of our, those are our next focuses. It's awesome. It's really cool. And what kind of what kind of uh, new experiments or things are you trying to do around growth and, and just getting hardbound in front of people? Well, or, is, or is it too um, early to talk about? It's not too early to talk about. We don't know. So I'll preface it with like, this is all like uh, hypotheses rather than results. <laughs> but we kind of have this theory that the best way for us to grow is to create content that leads people to books that we have in hardbound and create that content in a way that's a lot easier faster, cheaper for us to do. And so we're going to start to do a ton of essentially content marketing, but hopefully a little bit better version of content marketing than what most companies do. Because most content marketing is like, you have some tool that's like about productivity and maybe you write some blog post about productivity and you have like a blog about it or whatever. And you hope that some percentage of people who come to your thing to read an article end up signing up for your product and paying you. But, you know, that's like, especially if it's a tool that like a team is using and paying for, it's kind of tough because purchase decisions for that, your company, like trying to decide what tool to adopt, usually don't happen like immediately like that. Like for some people they might, but for us, like if we can create, let's say, you know, Elon Musk just launched, you know, his company Neuralink. So let's say like on the day that happened, there's lots of demand for like better understanding of what is Neuralink. And we could write a blog post that's like, how Neuralink would be disruptive to these like top five tech companies if it works. And we can use ideas from the innovator's dilemma. And so we can convert demand from like trying to understand what Neuralink is into demand for the innovator's dilemma, which the best way to satisfy that demand is to read the hardbound version of it. And once you read the hardbound version of it, you might want to read the hardbound version of other books. And so we feel like, and our early tests are pretty good in terms of our conversion rates. We're just going to do a lot better than would be traditional for content marketing. It'll make it a much more efficient channel for us. And also we think we can, we can probably grow a lot faster because our core competency is like good storytelling. So it pays off. Like if we're really great at content, like the fact that it's free content online that leads you to our app, it should be equally interesting to read as one of the actual like sort of stories in our format in our library, like based on a book, it should be equally interesting to read as one of those. And so we're, we're, we're really focused around that. And then there's a bunch of different ways that we're going to try that. Like you can imagine some stuff we might do with video or with Instagram or like with medium posts or like, you know, newsletters and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're even considering potentially creating a pod. Well, we actually had a podcast earlier, but we're thinking about relaunching it as like a much more focused and better kind of a thing. But um, just expect to hear a lot more from us. And like, we're just going to, our, our focus is going to be like make stuff that we would love to read and trust that if we do a good job at that, that there's going to be a big audience out there of other people who feel the same way. But the, the, the key is to focus on, I think for us, and whether it's our product or our marketing, just things that we feel like add value, you know, and not, not just spending money like to put us in front of people like with ads. 
Sounds really exciting. We'll definitely have to have you back to kind of give us a recap on, on you know, how these new ideas and experiments are, are going for you in Hardbound. So we've talked about a ton of stuff and, you know, maybe just to recap and, and end the episode, do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by and you think other people should know about? Oh, I have many of them. <laughs> Probably one of the best ones, I think, is when you're making a decision about something, imagine yourself explaining that decision to like your grandkids when you're in your 80s or something. Because I think taking away some of the time element makes it a lot easier to, and this isn't really like life motto or anything like that. It's more of just like a perspective to take of like the long-term perspective of like, I think one of the biggest things that limits most people is just fear. And it certainly limits me a ton. And imagining yourself in your eighties, explaining your decision, you don't want to do the thing that was just because you're afraid to do it. You know, you want to be able to explain that despite the fact that you're afraid, you did the thing that you felt was right, or you did the thing that you felt was like the better decision for you. And uh, I think that's a really good, good perspective that's helped us make some really tough uh, decisions that we've had to make in Hardbound and in just like the rest of my life, like not joining Product Hunt, all that kind of stuff. I mean, another one is, uh, I remember saying this to Ryan like a while ago, you know, if you look back six months and you're not a little bit embarrassed by how naive you were, then you're probably not learning fast enough because I think it's really easy to like look back and think like, oh man, I was so dumb and like feel bad about it. Uh, And a lot of people do, but it's actually a really good sign. And maybe if you don't feel like you were dumb in some way, six months ago, then you should think about what you could be learning <laughs> and try and put yourself in a situation where you're improving more more rapidly, you know, as a person. And this and the side effect of improving rapidly is feeling like your old you was uh was dumb <laughs> in some ways. In a loving way. But you know. One of the things that's interesting to me is this whole idea of like passion, like following what you're interested in and you know, like there's definitely some kind of debate about it. Like have you read uh, Cal Newport's Deep Work? I haven't, but it's on my to to read list very shortly. Nice. Well, there's a hardbound coming out about it at some point too. Perfect. Um, I'll wait for that one and, and scoop that. Yeah, out. no, don't necessarily wait. It's a really good book, so you should read it anyway, and you could read the hardbound. But he talks a little bit about how like kind of passion is overrated, and instead you should seek to do like be uniquely good at something, like try and contribute something to the world that uh, like build some unique capabilities and skills. And I think to a certain extent, he's right, because I think there's a lot of people who like don't really know what they're passionate about and let them kind of hinder them from making any progress, because it's almost like they don't want to go too far down one road if they're not sure that that's the road for them. I don't think that's good. But like, yeah, for me, like, I'll definitely say there's there's got to be like something that you maybe don't fully understand yet, but you just pull in certain directions and only good things have ever come in my life from doing that. And I think also part of it is like, not just things that you might work on, but also people who you might be working with. And there are some people who are like relatively more prestigious or famous or whatever, or like seem like better opportunities from a financial standpoint or whatever. And then there's other people who maybe no one's heard of them or they don't have a particularly impressive resume, but like you just have a great feeling about them. Like go with the thing you have a great feeling about is another maybe, this is like graduation speech territory basically. But I think that's that's been a thing that's really helped me too. But those are the kind, that's like the sort of mental territory that I usually inhabit when I'm like facing hard decisions is uh, just go with what is most meaningful and important to me, you know, with as little fear being as little of a factor as possible in the equation, especially around short term type things and to, you know, work with people that I that I really admire and respect just as people, not because of like how famous they are or whatever, or like how accomplished they are or how much money a situation might bring me or anything like that. 
yeah, three huge insights that obviously uh, are very critical to, to your story and, and sort of so. So I appreciate you sharing those with us. Those those were awesome insights. Uh, Nathan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today, man. It was awesome to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is fun. I'll do it again if you want me to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anytime, anytime. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, as well as on the web at hacktostart.com. We honestly couldn't do this show without your awesome support, so if you liked what you heard, feel free to share it on Twitter or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and until next week. Thank you.